with any luck, it's probably some kind of like pseudo CIA thing where like you've got to just go in and like knock on a door three times, and you know someone will give you a piece of paper and tell you to go around the corner find the man in the trench coat next to the dumpster, you know, and you give him that piece of paper with a passcode on it. You know, and then he'll, you know, he'll knock on the dumpster and he'll open up the, uh, you know, the, the burger vault. You'll go down into the burger vault and, you know, there's, there's hamburgers and the hamburgers have a code on it. And then, you know, that'll, that'll take you to the space station recruiting office. Another exciting week has passed us by, and welcome back to the new and improved pod thing. I'm your host, Corey. And I'm your co-host, Antonio. And we're here to guide you through inconsistent ramblings this week. But we do talk about Lost in Space at some point. I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. It's quite out of this world. Ugh. Audible eye roll. Um, so I want to clean something up from last week. Uh, where I made a couple of um, assertions about space programs and, and uh, certain technologies um, and what certain companies are doing. So first of all, uh, while, while I uh, am, was uh, an aviation professional, um, that does not mean that I'm a rocketry professional. Um, uh, I, am, I am a dilettante at best. Uh, but that being said, uh, I, the things I want to clean up are, uh, one, uh, my mix-up with uh, the Blue Horizon Blue Origin. I was, try- I was racking my brain for like a couple of hours after we finished recording, and I was trying to figure out what, what juxtaposition I made where I'm like, what did I confuse? And of course, you know, I had to go back and I, I wanted to slap myself because I'm like, of course. I mixed it up with the New Horizons uh, mission from NASA ah, yes. to Neptune and Pluto. Uh, and that's where I screwed up. I'm like, man, Blue Horizon sounds right, though. It's because it's New Horizon. And so, of course, Blue Origin is Jeff Bezos' uh, his baby. Um, I also suggested that uh, SpaceX um, adapted technologies that were pre-existing. That was also incorrect because they, if I'm not mistaken, I might be mistaken on this a little bit, my, my understanding is that the Merlin engines that they use are of their own design. It's actually uh, Blue Origin that adapts technologies that already exist. So that was also a uh, that was also a uh, fallacy on my part. So I do want to apologize for the sake of credibility um, and cleaning that up. Uh, but yeah, so I make mistakes. I'm more than happy to admit them as as a professional uh, in technical fields and whatnot. So if I'm going to say things, I should say them for accuracy. So before anyone blows me up and tells me what a moron I am, I promise I will come back in the following week after cleaning up my own speech and I will correct myself. So thanks for that. So yeah. Uh, so what are so what what is your take so far now that you've you've gotten through the first season of Lost in Space and you are uh, you are are going to start the second soon hopefully. So, so I can do some justice to to characters and actresses. I think Parker Posey's June Harris, Doctor Smith, mm-hmm. gets under my skin brilliantly and is a really well done villain. Mm-hmm. I think Will Robinson's a little bitch. He, I, I promise, he he redeems himself in the second season. He, but I, I think that well, a at lot the of... end of the first season, he he should shows him when he goes outside of the, you know, spoilers for Lost in Space, even though it came out two, three years ago now. Um, you know, at new the season end of, coming though. There's a new season coming. The last season, year. the last season is co- yeah, 2021. The last season is yeah. coming, but hey, we're halfway through 2020, so if we survive 2020, we might we get, get Lost in Space in 2021. But like so, at the end of the season one, though, when he goes and you know, I'm the only one to do it, and goes out and manually closes, you're starting to see that change in his character a bit, and I like that. Of course, he yeah, then immediately no, I... slips and lets go of the ladder and starts plummeting toward the planet. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um. But no, he he totally redeems himself in the uh, in the second season. Um. You know, he's 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 a little older. You know, you're not dealing with like some ten year old anymore. Like he's he's gotten. You know, he's like twelve or something now, and he's you know even though it's he's he's twelve, but he's not twelve because it, the it takes place the the new season starts seven months after they leave the planet and become separated from everybody else. Okay, so it's it's all the time he was on the planet, and then seven months, so like not even a year. Um, okay. but you know, I guess I guess he hit a growth spurt in puberty in the meantime. Uh, so sure. it, it turns out it turns out okay for him. Okay. So, I like Maureen as a character, Molly Parker, um, finding out exactly what she... What's that? 
No, she's great. I'm agreeing. She she does a very, yeah. she does a good job of playing that role. I like her a lot. And finding um, out, finding out what she had to what she did to get Will accepted. Right, right. I don't know who plays Judy, but I like her a lot. She's uh she's an excellent Judy actress. Judy is played by Taylor Russell. Yeah, she does. She she's kick ass. She really does a, a good job. I I like her character a lot. Um, it's not even like a character development because I, I don't want to say that her character has no development. Her character does mature, but. I like how her character comes into her own as as a professional and as a leader, um, and but it's those are already traits that her character has exuded from the beginning. Um, you know, I think that it's you know she's a little more mischievous, uh, even though she's I can't even say mischievous. She's not really mischievous. She's more cautious and more responsible, but she's really dedicated to like being that leader. Um, and and she just does such a kick-ass job of it. Like it's it's really believable. Like uh, I mean, I, again, I don't know I don't know anything about her in real life. She's an actress. But um, it, it like the way that she portrays the character, and I say this coming from a leadership perspective, from you know my military background, like the way that she talks, the way that she carries herself as a character, makes you believe that she has legitimate, real world like leadership experience or potential. Like she does a really, really good job of playing that character. Yeah, no, she really does. I honestly, I think the casting all around is done really well in this series. Um, yeah, I think so. Because even then, the actress who plays Penny does a really good job with that character kind of playing her as this, you know, teenage girl who's kind of not happy to be on the planet, but still has her own job to do. And oh yeah, you know, for sure. And Penny, Penny is great. Swing. Yeah, she has she has great character development. I I do like Penny a lot. I think she's um she she kind of brings to the table like whereas Will even though I mean uh, even though Will is is kind of I don't want to say he's like a Wesley Crusher. But he's kind of like a Wesley Crusher. He's not. He's not immediately useful. But he's like a kid who plays with Erector sets and like builds models. And so like even though he's not a a an advanced or codified scientist, he has the intelligence. He has the aptitude and the capability. Um, and so that is there. Uh, Judy is also a you know she she is a a medical student. Um, she's the the Robinsons like family doctor. Uh, so she has a lot of that medical scientific background and experience on top of like that leadership training, trying to take like those um, John Robinson Navy SEAL kind of uh, personalities and like making them her own. So she does a good job of that and like being like that super useful colonist, um, you know. And this, again, the same thing with Marine; she's an astrophysicist with, and, and an engineer. Um, but then you've got like Penny, and Penny is like. I don't want to say she's, like, the lawyer of the group, but she's kind of, like, that person in the colony who studies, like, the humanities. And, like, while you don't think that that's an important aspect of it, like, as far as maintaining a cultural identity, as far as, like, kind of keeping people together in a, in a, in a human way outside of the science, like, she does an excellent job at that. And I think that's a really... It's, it's, it speaks to not only being underappreciated in, like, you know, in a space setting where you'd think you just want nothing but scientists and, and engineers... But like in society, you know, where she it's just like this underappreciated thing is like, oh well, you know, I'm a I'm kind of a dreamer and I'm kind of an author and I I'm into literature and I'm I'm more into you know humanity studies. And you would think, well, that's kind of useless, but it's really not because of course, once you're all in space, you know, you you are still humans. There's still a need for expression, there is still a need for literature, there's still a need for poetry. Um and I think she does a good job of kind of like bringing that around. She does. I do like one thing we're talk about leadership i do like the running joke of i voted for the other guy that comes up throughout it as they talk about victor oh yeah no i i hate victor victor's um victor's a steaming cunt but that also that also does uh play well to his character to his actor you know because you uh you know who the good actors are because they make you hate their characters so much and that's why like dr smith like holy crap like she owns the shit out of that role because i can't stand her when she comes on screen (laughs) <laughs> that's, but that's that's because she's just a great actress. Yeah, Parker Posey's a great actress, and she does really, really well. I mean, yeah, the way she does Doctor Smith in this series is great. Um, honestly, I think that's really the breakout character of the first season is the way she did Doctor Smith. Just gets under your skin. You can see how she just uses, manipulates people. How she is just plays a very well sociopath. Yeah, you'll you'll hate her more and more as it progresses. Promise. I mean, there's. I know it doesn't seem like that's possible, but it's totally possible. Like you will, you will hate her just a little bit more as all of this continues. 
Honestly, you know who my favorite character in this entire series is? Debbie. The robot? The no, oh, Debbie the chicken. Debbie the chicken. I do like Debbie the chicken. She has some of the most profound lines. She has the best character development in the whole thing. It's great. It's true. She I'm goes from being a season... chicken in space to a chicken on the planet. I mean, that's great. I hope she comes back for season two. She needs to I mean, really get I... that Emmy for best supporting chicken. Spoiler alert, she goes back to being a chicken in space. She kind of relapses to her old ways. Oh. Um, yeah, I know. It's really disappointing, but it's just kind of one of those things that happen. I hate character um, regression. I really do. Yeah, I think I think though at some point, you know, and this is this is maybe it might just be some fan service, but she might develop into a chicken nugget eventually. We'll see. It depends on how much radioactivity is uh, present. Well, chicken nuggets are pretty yummy, man. I have chicken nugget dreams all the time. I don't know if Don would allow that, but we'll see. I don't know. Don's another character I actually really did enjoy. I like Don. I love Don West because Don Don West to me is um really characteristic of like it's so. If if you if you ever worked in a technical field, there's always the eternal struggle between engineers and mechanics, or engineers and technicians. Um, and it's because the engineer is is the the crazy person who sat down and designed it and and tried to make everything feasible and kind of put it together on paper and through math and in their head. And that's all well and good, you know. But the mechanic is the person that has to live in reality and has to intimately learn the machine and truly knows what the machine can do. And so, um, as you saw when they were trying to break orbit, you know, they're like, oh, well, you know, we, we have to get to X temperature or this or that. And, like, you know, we, 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 you can only vent at, so, at, at such altitude and at such temperature. Otherwise, it'll blow up. And Don's like, no, you're stupid. And it's like, I know for a fact that this machine can do this because we've taken it to X parameters and then beyond. Um, and he's like, I know what this thing can take without exploding. You know, and, and even when they're they're trying to break orbit, you know, as they, they, they persist, it's like, you know, oh, you have to vent now. He goes, no. He's like, it's, it's too soon. He goes, I need five more seconds and then I'll vent it. And because he knows, because he works with the engines, he repairs the engines. And so, like, well, the engineer has a, a conceptual concept of, of how, or not conceptual concept, that's redundant, a conceptual idea of, of how the engine is going to function or what the limitations of the engine are by design. The mechanic understands how it works in reality. And I, I like that, that Dawn brings that, that level of genius to it. You know, and he even, like, jokes where she's like, oh, well, you know, how are you going to do this? Or how are you going to do that? And he's like, I thought you were the engineer. Mm -hmm. I think one of my favorite things for him, too, is when they're up, actually trapped up there, when him and John Robinson are trapped up in space after the ship explodes because Dr. Smith knocks out more mm -hmm. And he's, you know, being macho and trying not to cry as John's going through with the wires. It shows you there just how technical the engine that he is as the mechanic is. He just looks at it immediately once he cries and sparks their fire. Right. And there's also the, uh, he looks as, what the hell did you do to this thing? He's trying to yeah. guide him along. Yeah, what'd you do to this thing? I mean, I tried everything. Uh and it's got a lot of one-liners like that. Don provides a lot of one-liners as a character, and that's really good. He's almost like a comedic relief. Yeah, Don's got a lot of really good zingers, and I appreciate that about his character overall. So, I guess some of the other things in it, though, is just, it's an overall a great series. The robot was interesting to me. Finding out the reason it was on the resolution to begin with was because they took their, I guess, engine technology. Uh, I mean, I, I, I could say, I couldn't say. I don't know. I mean that's kind of what I'm what I gathered from from season one so far is that um, to get that technology and they were piecing together I guess that the, that you know the meteor that fell that kicked everything off for them was actually the alien ship etc. So some of it's some of it's a little for speculation. Um, I mean I, I have I have a theory, um, but it hasn't been completely confirmed yet. Um, but basically, actually, yeah, you you know this from season one. Um, so. As you know, the, the ship is kind of like, quote-unquote, part of the robot. Like, they're mm -hmm. connected. I, I speculate that, like, in a weird sense, it's kind of like biotech. Um, in the sense that, like, the robot's connected to the machine, but it's more than that. Like, they didn't just steal, like, an engine. Like, they probably stole, like, what, what is the equivalent of, like, one of those robot's eggs. Or, like, one of those robot's, like, souls. Or, like, something like that. And that's why there's so much aggression. Uh, towards like, you know, dealing with like the the engine situation because it's more than just an engine. Oh. Yeah, no, I could see that. I mean, 
Yeah, I, I mean, it probably is more than just an engine. I mean, especially since it is an organic kind of like robotic matter is what the robot is. Mm-hmm. So it's most likely more than just an engine and the humans are just using it as an engine. Perhaps it's maybe of like a core consciousness or it's it's some sort of technology to help their propulsion units. But at least the way they use it is artificial gravity and let's travel really fast to Alpha Centauri. It's more of, hey, the government adapting alien technology and making us go faster than we should. Is that is that artificial? Well, is it is it for the artificial gravity though? Because I think doesn't don't, don't for the well, artificial gravity don't they utilize the uh, the centrifugal force of the capsules um, on, so, on the resolute on the resolute? But if you think about it, when they launch into orbit on the Jupiter, there's gravity. Oh, that's right. Ship. You're right. You're right. That's right. Then, the then they, they even inquire. It's trapped, and it's actually shown that the orb is trapped on the underside of their of the of the EV of the EV. Yeah. And and you're right, and I do remember that. Where they're like they where Doctor Smith throws the helmet and it hits the ground, and she's like, "Uh, what the hell?" And she's like, "Shouldn't it float?" And they're like, "Uh, yeah, yeah, it totally should." So uh, that that that's gotta have something to do with it, probably. So and I That'd guess we'll talk more about the robot because the way they did the robot in this, it, it I do like the robot design. It's more modern robot design, and I guess. If you look at it, what the Lost in Space robot design was before, which which Back before we talked about 1998 or 1969, was at the at the time, mm-hmm. and it's Pretty also cool. what inspired a lot of robots. But this robot here, it's more modern, but it doesn't it doesn't stand out to me like the classic robot did. I mean, yeah, because it's it's more humanoid in nature. Um, I mean, I will say this: as if it's bad because that movie was so fucking terrible. And I think I've even said this on a previous podcast that we did. Um, but like, I do, I do so much like the design for the 1998 robot. Um, I, I think yes, it's, it's just, a, it's, it's a really cool design, but the difference is though, they followed in the original story, the robot, I don't believe the robot was an alien. I think that well, actually let me rephrase in 1998. I think the robot was part of the ship. I don't think that was an alien robot. I think the robot it was, was like part of, it was part uh, of the, the robot ship was, with, Yes, it was, if I remember correctly. Uh, in the 60s, I don't remember if they found the robot or if the robot was part of the ship and it had some kind of memory scramble issue. I don't recall. Um, in this one, the robot's completely alien. Um, and so therein lies a big difference, and I, and I guess like the design of it, um, where it's you know it doesn't stand out as much because it's not meant to. Uh, whereas in like when it's part of their ship, they want to they want you to know like, hey, this is a robot. This robot is bright blue, and I'm, I'm referencing the 1998 one. This robot is bright blue. He's got a red eye. He's got big claws and, like, tank tracks. Like, this is a robot. Um, yep. You know, whereas in this one, he's part of a species of some sort. He's, sort. he's part of some sort of biomechanical species. And so it's kind of like, yeah, he's a robot, but the emphasis is not on him being a robot. The emphasis is on him being a, a semi-sentient being. And so, like, you know, it's, it's not weird for him to be, like, bipedal. You know, it's not weird for him to to just kind of blend in and just kind of have more subdued color scheme because he's not supposed to be like out there and super noticeable. He's supposed to just be, you know, a member of his species or a member of his, of his robot group. Yes. So real quick, we had mentioned, I, we had mentioned this, we talked about how, you know, lost in space and the Jetsons took place during our time. Uh, yeah, to an extent. Oh well, yeah. I guess the original as far as, yeah, yeah, they did. Yeah. The original Lost in Space took place in in 1997, the one from the 60s. Jesus. They really it's even funnier cuz they thought they were going to be there in less than 30 years cuz the one from the 60s, I forget, I think it was 1965 or 1969. Um, 65. Was it 65? Okay, yeah. So, and they thought in 32 years that that's where they were going to be. Yep. Like that's, that's super ambitious. Also, that's super ambitious. They um predicted the space force with the space core because oh yeah, Don West was a Space Corps general in the original, or Space Corps major rather, in the '60s one. I actually saw a Space Force uh, advertisement on on uh, on TV the other day, and I'm laughing because I'm like, you know, it's funny because they have like this whole Space Force commercial, like these Space Force advertisements, but they don't have a Space Force website. They don't have a really? Space Force. They, they don't. They don't have any. They're not even talking about jobs. It's literally somebody wearing like some kind of like Air Force style camis and they're just looking up at the sky. And it's like, have you ever dreamed of being a part of something larger? You ever dreamed of looking up at the stars and like doing stuff? 
join Space Force. And this fucking girl in camouflage is like looking up at the stars and like, like there's satellite link ups and shit. I'm like, what the fuck am I looking at? You don't even have like a spaceforce.gov for me to go fucking look at your mission statement. Do they even have like, a recruiting station? No, man. Dude, and I, I, I think it'd be so funny if they did because it would literally just be like, you know, the, the Army, the Navy, the Marines, uh, and, and the Coast Guard. You know, and the Air Force, or the, the Army, Navy, Marines, Air Force, and then, you know, the Coast Guard and the National Guard are often, like, you know, a different part of the plaza being being themselves. And then Space Force will probably just get, like, a different building somewhere on a block, or, like, a different a different office is just farther away, not even part of the other branches. Like, you know, it's the, the with any luck, it's probably some kind of, like, pseudo-CIA thing where, like, you've got to just go in and, like, knock on a door three times and, you know, someone will give you a piece of paper and tell you to go around the corner find the man in the trench coat next to the dumpster, you know, and you give him that piece of paper with a passcode on it, you know, and then he'll, you know, he'll knock on the dumpster and he'll open up the, uh, you know, the, the burger vault. You'll go down into the burger vault and, you know, there's there's hamburgers and the hamburgers have a code on it. And then, you know, that'll that'll take you to the space station recruiting office. And then once you get there, you got to tell him that Roscoe sent you so you can get that sweet sign-up bonus. Right, exactly. Otherwise, you exactly. miss out on the sign-up bonus. You went through all of that for nothing, and all you have to show for it is throwing your white life away to the Space Force. Right, exactly. exactly. Please get those sign-up bonuses, folks. That's, that's all I'm trying to tell you. I mean, not to, not to knock the concept. I think it's a cool concept overall. Um, but, like, I think initially, like, first off, how the fuck do you get someone to, like, quote-unquote, enlist in Space Force? Like, all, all you're doing at that point is just getting Air Force, or people who otherwise would have been recruited to the Air Force for, like, satellite communication stuff. And then just like doing that for them. Otherwise, like so, even your enli- even your enlisted personnel would need some kind of background training in engineering or physics or like some kind of community my, I guess college my degree. question is, what would it be a space force deployment at this point? You know, like you join the space force and you're getting deployed. Where are you going? <laughs> Not the moon. Obviously, we haven't been back in fifty-one years. Right. Exactly. And we just said here, we went there once, we found no cheese, we leave our trash, we leave. Yeah, I actually, uh, I watched a video um, on, on YouTube. There are, like, I think the count is 409 pieces of trash that NASA has left on the moon. Like, specifically NASA and the U.S. And, like, I think 30 of those things are, like, bags of waste. Like, bags of human yeah, feces. From and, and the, yeah, from the Apollo missions. Yeah, there's left in there. It's like there's like six different there's like six different American flags and like you know six different lunar modules that are left there and it's like it's a whole big stupid thing about how much waste and like I think the the aggregate total is is somewhere in like a billion dollars worth of shit we just left up there and what's even worse is like stuff that we could have taken back like they um one of them is actually a a box of two dollar bills because a two dollar bill is worth two dollars. A two dollar bill that's been to the moon is worth like three grand per bill, yep. and so like they took a whole stack of them up there with the intention of bringing them back and selling them at an up at an upcharge, and uh, they forgot them. Well, that and you know NASA used to actually have a policy in place that would prevent them from profiting off of the space program. Well, I mean, I know that they um they did get in trouble for some of it because uh, they the U.S. Postal Service came out with a campaign, um to uh to have like stamps i mean of course they always do like artistic stamps but it was in you know the the age of the space race um and where it was pictures of like the moon and of like the earth from moon or like there were artistic renditions rather uh on postal stamps but of course postal stamps have a fixed price you know unless you're selling them as like collector's items uh postal stamps have you know and this years and years after mind you postal stamps are, are required to have a fixed price um and so they took a bunch of postal stamps to the moon that had those artistic renditions of space and then brought them back and tried to sell them. Um, and, of course, at, at the time, those were still active postal stamps. So, like, it was illegal. Uh, my understanding, at least, is that it was illegal to upcharge them and plus whatever disclaimer that they had and, and uh, that they had signed, I'm sure, about not trying to profit off the program. And so they tried to not only profit off the program, but they tried to upcharge on a federal document that was currently in circulation for a specific price because it had been to the moon. And so, like, I think they were, those, those astronauts, I think, were ultimately removed from the program. That wouldn't surprise me at all. Which is crazy when you think about it, too, because, like, if you, if you think that, you're the, that anyone is, like, above reproach of any kind, you imagine to be a fucking astronaut. Yeah, like, I mean, no, hell, like, 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 like Buzz Aldrin punched a man in the fucking face, and, like, nothing oh, happened. He- 
To be fair, Buzz Aldrin punched a man in the face for telling him that the moon landing was fake. I mean that. Listen, that's it's that's not the same as like you know someone walking up to you and like you know threatening to like rape your wife here. Like this is this is someone this is someone going. I don't believe that you did a part of your job. Like you don't get to assault someone for that. That's that'd be like someone coming up to me and saying like I don't believe you ever went to Afghanistan. I'd be like, well, you're a moron. <laughs> you know, yeah, well, just, punching you in the face isn't going to prove that. I mean, you'll you'll see some stars, but it's not going to prove I mean, that, yeah, that I went to the moon. It's Buzz Aldrin. It is Buzz Aldrin, but again, you, you also you don't that? don't ever if you ever get the opportunity to actually meet the man, don't tell him he's the second man to walk on the moon. He gets mad. <laughs> I don't think it matters though. Like, like, dude, like you fucking walk on the moon. Like, who gives a shit? You are one of like twelve people that got to do that, and one of the few who are still living. It's true, but yeah. So I mean, if you think that anyone's above reproach, you, you imagine it would be an astronaut, right? Um, but then there were even the uh, there were some astronauts that were on. Um, I don't know if it was the ISS or if it was a, uh, one of the different space stations, like the Skylab. Um, I think it was the Skylab actually. But they had so heavily packed their schedule, filled with like experiments, and it was there. They were there for like a hundred something days, and uh, a lot of companies and and you know entities had worked very hard to get uh, on to get their experiments on the uh, station. And so they literally had them on a, they had them scheduled up to 30 second intervals. Um, and th- so they were just wiped out. Like they were just constantly, constantly working on stuff. And so they were, they were really drained. Um, and eventually what ended up happening was they just stopped answering the radio for like three hours. <laughs> I forgot it was three, I thought it was three hours or three days, but like oh, at some point they, they, but they did just stopped. But remember, as we discussed, uh, space law is an extension of international maritime law. So what they did was technically uh, what they did technically constituted piracy, because the definition, the legal definition of piracy is to like um, to unlawfully impede the movement or function of a vessel on the high seas. Uh, and so basically, because the vessel in question was government property, uh, they essentially commandeered a government vessel. Uh, from its from its lawful duty in space by not not necessarily by refusing to do the work but by not answering their radio and, and purposely having no contact with mission control. So they came back and like they were I don't know if they were officially charged with piracy, but they basically came back and they were no longer astronauts after completing the mission. But what's funny about that is after they um by going on strike uh for that for that time period uh, and getting the rest that they needed, they actually were more productive, even though they were heavily behind schedule, and they completed every single experiment uh, that they were assigned before they got back. And that particular incident is what forced uh, NASA and Associated Space Agencies to allow astronauts to have mandatory break time uh, to break up the monotony. Uh, one, to avoid incidents like that again, and two, like to just for their, their mental well-being. Well, yeah, I mean, you're isolated for so long in a certain area, you need to have a break time and just to be, yeah. But isn't that crazy, yeah. though? Because at that point, we'd already established unions. We'd already established, like, mandatory break times and certain mm-hmm. and certain other, like, legal protections as far as work was concerned. Like, did anybody think that sending a man into fucking space and then putting them on a space station in orbit and then making them just do tedious-ass experiments all day long was going to be any different than working down here on the ground? I mean, sure, they just get to do it weightless now. Right, exactly. Like, there's your, that, that's their break. They get to float around while doing it. They don't have to tax their bodies with that pesky thing called gravity. Yeah, right. You know, something we hadn't but talked yeah. about yet, though, was Ian Holm passing away. We lost Bilbo. Oh, my God, yeah. Yeah, we, we definitely got to give a, a shout-out to, to Bilbo. That's such a crazy... He has, he has gone on to the Silver Isles, um, you know, and, and we will hopefully see him one day. Yep, and but, Ian uh, Holm also in a bunch of sci-fi films. He was in Alien. He was... He was an alien. And he was also in the fifth element. fifth element. He was the priest in the fifth element. It's so crazy because, like, I, I, I actually, I, I watched the fifth element not that long ago, and like, it just didn't, it didn't click. It didn't dawn on me as I looked at it that I was looking at Bilbo. Like, and I don't know why, because I it mean, was, well, it's, that's I was... a recognizable face. I'm like, why don't I remember this? Like, yeah, I was you know, prepping, and that's what I, I discovered while I was prepping for the show that he was in the fifth element. And I was like, no, he wasn't. No, he wasn't. And then I was like, okay, yes, he was. I'm like, oh, shit, yeah, he was. That movie just people keep popping up out of the woodwork in that movie. That's a good sci-fi movie, too. Keep it all sci-fi talk for a minute. That's actually a really good movie. Well, I wouldn't say a really good movie, but it's a good movie. It's a cult classic. I mean, you know, it's, it, if you... 
I, I haven't met anyone who flat out hates it, but most people I've met who are into sci-fi, who are you know into into just any most of those of those genres that we discuss, like they tend to like it. Yeah, it is a good film. It's got a lot going for it. It's got the comedy. I mean, Chris Tucker's just Chris Tucker. Chris Tucker, honestly, Chris Tucker, in my, in my opinion, Chris Tucker stole that movie. Like that, that, that oh, yeah. Chris, Chris, Chris Tucker is, is easily the most recognizable part of that movie. Like I, I see, I see some Lilu costumes, and I have to take like you know, I have to do a double take because it's like, of course, it's it's obvious, but it's not like that's not the first thing I think of. But then I see leopard print with a wig, and I'm like, Chris Tucker, fifth element. Yep, no, that's a recognizable costume for sure. That movie was so different it was good though i really did like that one um i didn't i didn't like it i'll admit i did not like it at all the first few times i watched it it, it took me watching it a third time to appreciate it. it it had to grow on you but then you realize the cast i mean not even just with ian holm in it but i mean bruce willis Milojevic, um gary oldman chris tucker gary oldman oh my god gary oldman just kills it dude he's he's phenomenal in everything he does and he does he does the psychopath so flipping well that it's crazy when you like see him in a role where he's not a psychopath. Like you see him as Commissioner Gordon, you're like, "Oh, is he gonna go nuts here?" And you're like, "No, no, he's just helping Batman." One of the only roles I really didn't like him in was when he played Dracula. I did not see him as Dracula. What what was he in? Uh, when did he play Dracula? In the Bram Stoker's Dracula with Keanu Reeves and Anthony Hopkins. Was oh, Keanu Reeves plays Jonathan Harker. Winona Ryder is Mina Harker. Gary Oldman is Dracula, and Anthony Hopkins is Van Helsing. Are you referring to the 1996 one? I'm referring to the Francis Ford Coppola one. No, nope, escapes me. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to go through my uh, my movie library and, and yeah, that's correct from, I think it's I think it's one of the I think it was ninety I don't know if it was ninety six I think it was earlier it was like ninety four I want to say. Okay, yeah, I gotta check that out. But yeah, it has Keanu Reeves, Winona Ryder, Gary Oldman. Who the only role I really I mean he plays a good Dracula, but I just don't like him as Dracula. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah, it totally makes sense. I just don't think it's a role for him. But that movie was okay. It was Universal trying to reboot some of their monster series because shortly after that we got the Frankenstein movie with Robert De Niro as the monster. Uh, I haven't seen that one either. Oh yeah, no, yeah, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Oh wait, that was Robert De Niro. Yes. What? He was the monster I didn't see that, that one. one. That was that was and a great movie. I didn't know that was Robert the De Niro. Frankenstein, the 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 Dracula I'm referring to came out in '92. I'll probably end up watching it just because it has Anthony Hopkins and Gary Oldman. I mean, I like Keanu Reeves, but um, and 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 I, I this was very much the whoa this. phase of Keanu. Well, Reeves. I kind of hate myself for saying it because I do like Keanu Reeves a lot. Um, I feel that Keanu Reeves came into his best uh, during the what I what I uh, lovingly call the Neo period. Um, I think that he was excellent as Neo. I, I think he does very well with brooding roles. Uh, I think he was an excellent John Constantine. Uh, I liked I liked the whole movie. A lot of people shit on that movie. I like that movie in general, um, and I think that his portrayal of John Constantine was damn near perfect. I thought he was great. Um, lots of attitude, lots of don't give a fuck. I think that was fantastic. Um, but like, I like Bill and Ted and appreciate it for what it is because it is a classic film. I do remember watching it. I have a lot of fond memories about it. But like, I don't think that that woe phase is right for Keanu Reeves because again, like, all what does he run with for the past you know decades? It's been you know, again, The Matrix, brooding roles, Constantine, John Wick. Like he's he doesn't do the woe thing, you know. He and 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 uh, from Even everything I've heard, back now with Bill and Ted. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, of course, but from from what the internet's told me, of course, he is very much like a super chill dude, very kind-hearted individual. Which I mean, is is great. You know, if it's true, of course, I, I the internet says so. But it's the internet, um, and I've never met the guy, so you know, uh, but. I, I don't, like, he's just, it doesn't work well for me. Like, I don't even want to say it's his emotional roles, because, like, I don't even like him in Speed. Like, I didn't, I didn't think that Speed, granted, I don't think Speed was a very good movie to begin with, but, like, I don't think that was a good role for him. No, I give you that. I mean, with this one, my problem with his act, with him in this movie in particular, is who he's acting with. He's got Gary Oldman and Anthony Hopkins, and this is very, very early Keanu career. Kind of one. Oh, you know what? Actually, I have. I have a. I think I have a good analogy for that, or at least a good comparison. Um, would have you seen Up in the Air with George Clooney and uh, Anna Kendrick? Yes. So that was one of Anna Kendrick's first first roles uh, in mm-hmm. in a big production, um, and I absolutely loved her in that. Uh, but it was kind of like, you know, alongside George Clooney, and uh, and Vera Farminga, 
who was also a pretty tenured actress at the time. Um, you know, as as someone who's kind of just getting established, like not that not that she was bad in that at all. She was fantastic in it. I think it, she did a great job with it. But it's kind of like that, where like you see a new person, and it's like you're. Well, I like. Well, I love Anna Kendrick now, but it's like back then you're like, yeah, Anna Kendrick. I don't really know who you are. You're kind of new. Um, but I'm really there for George Clooney and Vera Farmiga. Yeah, Is it like that? Yeah. yeah we're like, basically. like Keanu. Keanu was probably really good in that movie. Again, I haven't seen it. Not, I will see no, it all. no, no, no. Wasn't he? Was not good. He was. Okay, oh. he's. It's Keanu Reeves playing British lawyer Jonathan Harker. Oh. I imagine oh no. Keanu putting on a British accent. I don't want to. As surfer phase Keanu. Well, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go cry now. So yeah, go watch this movie. We can discuss it. Jeez. It might be worth it at some point. Oh my god. Uh, it's gonna, it's gonna come out when the Bill and Ted thing comes out. It's like, hey, remember even, this? Even Winona Ryder and this one being another early movie for her did better than Keanu in this movie. Damn, damn, that's cold, yo. Yeah, it's that's cold. Yeah, I'm sorry. Don't hate me, internet, Keanu. It's like the internet loves inter- Keanu Reeves. Like the internet's gonna skewer me for making fun of for saying something that he was bad in a movie. I guarantee it. I don't think so. I, I mean, look, not not everyone's perfect their first go around. Again, like you know, like they're you know, it's just they're, people people have bad movies. A lot of great actors have bad movies. Uh, or we made the comment earlier as how science fiction uh, inspires actual science uh, and scientific developments. Uh, rep Star Trek replicators and 3D printers. Yeah, actually, yeah, because that's about yeah. what a 3D printer really is. It's a replicator. Exactly, and also the they have 3D printers now, uh, or I say now as if it's a new thing. It's a couple of years old as far as the tech is concerned. But um, as of recently, they have uh, 3D printers that you can put. Um, it's like protein pastes, and it yep. can make food. So it is. It is a true replicator so like what you could in in theory and it would probably take a couple hours which you know we'll get better at it as time goes on i imagine but in theory you could put in the uh the regular plastic uh thread go in there it'll make you a cup you know and then you put in you know the the protein thread and it would go ahead and fill it up with some kind of earl gray and then you could just mix that with honey and like that's it you'd have earl gray hot as it have to come out hot that's the thing Right, you, you, yeah, but you could feel like Picard. Make it so. So it is, it, so. it is doable, right? We're getting there, slowly but surely. But damn it, we're getting there. I mean, that's the truth, though, is that you know, sci-fi inspires a lot of modern technology. Cell phones, I absolutely. Mean, the phone design is identical, is almost identical to the old tricorder design from the original series. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, you the, know, the, the cell technology. I mean, I think we discussed this on our last show as well, but I mean, the uh, all of the apps that, you, you know, everything everything that your phone can do, you know, whether it's reading like QR codes or, or barcodes and stuff like that, you can take pictures uh, with the connectivity of the internet. They have um, different apps now, one where uh, there are some botanists who are developing uh, plant ID apps. Uh, so basically all you can, all you really need to do is go outside um, and then open up the app, allow access to your camera and just, you know, essentially show the app a flower or a plant that you find outside and it will bounce it against the database and tell you what you're looking at exactly. Yep. And it's amazing to think that in the power of your hand is something that what 80 years ago now was the size of a room and inten- not just a small room, not like a bedroom size, but like a school cafeteria room. Oh, not even I'll blow your mind further. Um, a, a Texas, uh, a Texas instruments scientific calculator, like the kinds that we used in, you know, high school 10 plus years ago, mm-hmm. those have more computing power than uh, anything that was on the Apollo missions rockets. Yeah. And that's, what's crazy to me is to think about how little, how little technology we had to get to the moon compared to what we have now to have not gone back. Oh, well, I mean, it's, it's even funnier when you have these people. And, and of course it's a lie. I, at least I, I fully believe it's a lie. Um, with the advances in, in both aviation and military technology and budgeting. Um, you know, the they made the assertion by they, I mean the government, um, when because they were asked by by reporters and different media outlets uh, why we haven't gone back. They they asked that of NASA, and they had the audacity to say, "Oh well, we don't know how to go back anymore. We've we've lost the technology to go to the moon." Like you're out of your fucking mind. Shut up. Like that's 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 just a lie. Like flat out. Like no one's that stupid. Absolutely. Because like, I, I I have an impossible time believing that we can develop 
the F-22 Raptor and the F-35 Lightning that, that are, you know, we, and the SR-71 Blackbird and, and, and everything in between, you know, that, and, and we can, you know, go into the Mariana Trench of the submarine. Uh, we, can, we can go to, you know, acidic wastelands, um, you know, in, in different arid parts of the Earth, and that we can take ridiculous icebreakers into the Antarctic, you know, and that after having gone to the moon multiple times and having developed technology as we have we've just forgotten we just oh we, we forgot how we don't know how to get there like you're out of your fucking mind if you think that people are stupid enough to believe that yeah we had six missions land on the moon and walk on the moon we had a couple missions that went around the moon we've done experiments with people living in space for upwards of a year now Mm-hmm. We have We've... an international space station that's out there orbiting the Earth that has more computing power in it than we had to get to Apollo. And I'll do one better. We developed a reusable space shuttle for the express purpose of being able to do takeoff and landings. Reusable. Oh, and don't, and don't and forget... We can't the moon. And don't forget we've landed no less than three rovers on Mars. So, like, like you know, like let's, let's be serious here. So, like, you mean to tell me we can land... A, a long-range vehicle. And granted, I understand. It's a rover. It's a robot. It's not the same as, like, people. But, like, it is kind of the same as people. Like, a lander's a lander. Like, I understand. Make the landing. Exactly. Like, I mean, you know, bo- boxing the... And I understand, again, you know, robots are a little more durable than people. You know, people don't like getting bounced around too much with airbags like, like certain rovers have been able to. But that being said, that doesn't change the fact that, we you know, the, the rover... Well, the robot's a sensitive piece of equipment, too. Like, let, like let's not be idiots here. You know, we, we can't just say, like, oh, yeah, you know, the rover will totally survive this this landing. Like, it is it is a sensitive piece of robotic equipment. It's not meant to get completely thrashed. You know, no, you know, it, it's got sensitive cameras on it, sensitive computers. So, like, yeah, you can bounce it around quite a bit. I'm sure it can take a lot of damage, and it lasts for quite a while. But, like, you know, the damn thing isn't bulletproof. So, you know, but, again, you can if you can get a rover to Mars, you can put a person on the moon. We've done it before. You know, so oh. it's it's just oh, exactly. silliness. I'll, like the, I'll do you one better. If the Chinese can land probes and l- l- lunar rovers on the far side of the moon, why haven't we been able to go back? Well, again, I don't think it's that we haven't been able to. I, I think that, I, look, I, I, when it comes to, to certain speculations, and again, this is where I sound like a tinfoil hat person, um, I think that we have been going there. I think that we have been doing certain things. I don't necessarily think that, like, it might not necessarily be people, but I, I think that it would be silly, like, as a strategic position, you know, there's plenty of reason to believe and to speculate that people have been going there, you know, or, or, or that things have been going there. We, we, haven't, we haven't left our presence, like, we, ha- we haven't abandoned our presence on the moon surface, that's, that's my opinion. Um, I think it's, you know, for all of the effort that we expend on ensuring that we stay in the Middle East... You know, for for the sake of a tactical position, I'm fairly certain that somebody somewhere has has made it a point to maintain a tactical position. You know, on on the fucking moon. It's so like it's it's probably one of the ultimate tactical positions. And understanding also that like under international law, you're not allowed, quote unquote, to put permanent stations on on the moon or or in space in general. But like, you know, I, I think that it would be silly to say that we don't have uh, certain tactical assets in those places. Well, and even then, under international law, if our goal is to use the moon as a launch pad to Mars, we're going to end up building permanent structure. Right, exactly, and that's and that's exactly it right there too. Like, and again, I'm not speculating it's for nefarious purposes, like that. You know, I'm not I'm not trying to be too crazy in that sense. Like, I, you know, but uh, for for also for legitimate purposes, I think there's plenty of exploratory reasons. And again, not to do the aliens thing, but like, you know, uh, we're we're speaking in the sense of like science and logic. So if we're right. talking about science and logic, we consider how many galaxies exist, the billions and billions and billions of galaxies um, that we know exist. You know, and so that also means, of course, when you, 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 you consider what you know about galaxies and about star systems, like each of those galaxies, you know, has star, they, they all have, they're made up of multiple star systems. You know, you consider that each, uh, each star system has, you know, lots of planets in it. <laughs> there, there, there are more planets and stars. And so, like you know, we, we there's it is absolutely impossible to, that we're the only ones. Now, again, not to not to go super nuts. I'm I'm sure that you know, again, knowing knowing science as we do, knowing that as you peer into the abyss, you know, you understand that the universe is expanding, um, and you also understand that the galaxy that you are looking at is, um, 
farther away than you are even able to say to to calculate because if it's if it's 13.8 light years away and, and that light has taken 13 years at the speed of light to reach the earth and again I'm speculating I don't have a, a specific galaxy in mind you know you are looking you know 13.8 years in the past so if it's you know if it's 100 if it's 100 light years away you're looking 100 years into the past but we also understand that as the universe expands it's the light that you're receiving is old and it's still get it's it's becoming incrementally further still uh, the light so neil deGrasse tyson neil deGrasse tyson has a really great way of articulating it where he says um, it's kind of like searching for a coin in a couch cushion um, you know because you're you're essentially chasing light you know you're you're looking you're looking at light and lights bouncing back and forth and basically he says that uh, the further you dig into the couch cushion to get the coin, the more your hand separates the couch cushions and the further the coin gets away from your hand. And he's like, that's that's what it is to be an astronomer and to like look through a telescope and kind of like chase the stars in this way. That's a really good way of putting it, actually. I thought so. But no, I actually am on that on that train with you on the whole fact that we're definitely not alone out there. I mean, I, I guarantee it's 100% there's something else. They've probably flown by, looked at us trying to destroy ourselves and said, not yet. We'll check back later. Uh, I mean, there's also there's also the speculation that they're stopping us from destroying ourselves. Um, there's been, there have been uh, several instances throughout history in which um, they have well, I say they as the extraterrestrials like like I'm aware of their intentions here, but um, where there have been nuclear facilities um, that have been breached uh, indirectly, where uh, they had missiles that were all like queued up with launch codes and everything. And then basically what happened was they saw some weird things overhead. There was some weird static interference, uh, some weird vehicles that they saw flying over the facilities, and that the missiles were rendered inert, like completely useless. Like all of the launch codes that were pre-programmed into lots of the missile systems were either scrambled or erased. So like there's, there's the speculation that they're actually stopping us from killing ourselves. But also when you consider... Um, the uh, the navy uh, man I really got to look his name up because I'm just making an ass of myself, but the uh, the navy pilot from 2004 um, uh, who who saw the Tic Tac UFO, uh, he also said that what he saw was a uh, a large vessel underneath the Tic Tac, like a massive massive submarine of some kind. Um, yes, I remember that. Yeah. It was under the under the ocean, under the surface of the water. And so there's you know of course the the Tom Cruise style War of the Worlds where like they've always lived among us. You know, there's a, I mean, there's a, there, there's every reason to speculate. Obviously, I can't come up with a narrative for it because obviously I'm not there. I don't know them. Then I might, you know, I'm, I don't make friends with aliens on a daily basis as much as I'd like to, you know, but they, they could just be here, you know, if, 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 if we are that part of like that alien zoo where like we're just part of this farm experiment for them, you know, they could, they could just be making sure we don't blow ourselves up. You know, man, Mark Zuckerberg's disguise is really, really bad then. Don't get me started on the Zuck. Politics permeates into everything. Well, of course it does, but I mean, you know, and, and we've discussed this as well too, like every everything has a political spin to it to some extent. Like when you talk about like, you know, even Star Trek, uh, we talk about like the stories that Roddenberry tried to tell initially, which were a lot of like moral tales, which were really popular in the 60s and 70s, and you, you get them anytime, anywhere, in any genre. But like, you know, the 60s and the 70s really were like the time for moral tales on television. Um, and Star Trek was no different. And Star Trek, you know, for, for whatever, for what it's worth, Star Trek has always been a, a left-leaning show uh, because it is, it is quite literally a socialist utopia, which is fine because in their, in their universe it works. Because, and, and they even give it as part of the storyline um, in uh, Deep Space Nine. And I believe they talk about it. Uh, they actually speak the narrative in The Next Generation where it's kind of like, oh, well, how did you, how did you get to this point? In, in Deep Space Nine, it's the Bell Riots where they, they go back in time and they, you know, Cisco ends up kind of taking over the persona of Bell and, and starting that uprising against the, the corrupt government that has uh, funneled the impoverished into the, into the zones. Whereas Picard actually speaks on the narrative and says, like, yeah, our people used to be just like you, greedy and savage and, and money hungry. And then, you know, we, we realized somewhere in the 21st century, after a lot of conflict and strife, that that did nothing to, like, progress our society, that it just made us worse as people and it made us a worse society. And so, like, we, we superseded that. We, we overcame it. You know, Star Trek's always been left-leaning like that. I mean, hell, like, they don't even have a system of, they don't even have, like, a system of credits until, unless they're going to a place like Ryza or somewhere that's outside of the Federation. Like, they don't, ha they don't even have a, an economic system. That's a good point. They actually really don't. You don't hear much about them paying for things in Star Trek. 
Well, it's, again, but it's, it's kind of what we talk about with, like, that Andrew Yang policy where, you know, where we, and this is also part of, like, science fiction, you know, to an extent, but, like, you know, what's, like, zeitgeist and stuff, um, they talk about a resource-based economy where, you know, if, if everything is automated, then what is the purpose of work? If everything is automated and, and we find a way to generate electricity to little or no cost and computing power is infinite, then what, what is the need for, for money as we understand it? You know, money at that point, money is nothing more than a, than a tool for power, you know, but if we become a knowledge based society where we're, you know, the real the real goal and the real power of the society is is in, you know, how much knowledge we can impart to people and, and um, you know, how, how we can utilize that to make our society better, then that's another story entirely. You know, so like that, your 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 value system changes. You know, so in a society, in a society where they are going to the stars, and they don't, it's not even an economic system, their their society is literally based on the fact that they are going to space so that they can learn as much as possible and they can explore the the galaxy, as it were. You know, I mean, at that at that point, like if that's their goal, then money really can't be an object because we we can sit here and calculate uh, the overall cost of what it is to go to space. We can we can do it in real time because we see it. We we currently do it. Private groups like SpaceX and and Blue Origin and uh, even like Boeing with the Starliner and different different aviation companies and conglomerates are are reducing those costs exponentially as they do more research. You know, it's still extremely expensive to get into space. And so, really, the only way that we can get to, I guess, like that Star Trek level is if we stop looking at uh, at the monetary barriers of it and we just say this is worth doing and this is where we should just focus our energy. And that's kind of kind of gets me into something I wanted to talk about anyway with us was the original space race. Cause that's exactly what it was, was, you know, the Russians launched Sputnik and here we are behind them. So what did we do? We focused pretty much the entire national attention to get Americans in space. Oh, sure. But unfortunately one of, one of the worst things though, is that, you know, as a space race for, for us, at least it was a sprint, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a marathon with, with, you know, uh, some kind of really um, well-defined end goal. We, we got to the moon we did it a couple more times to add insult to injury to prove that we could. And granted, there were definitely some experiments along the way, and there was a lot that we learned because, it, I mean, obviously there needs to be, you know, that's part of the space race aspect is, is making sure you learn something from the, from the entire prospect or the project, rather. Um, but we, we went to the moon, did it a couple times, and we just stopped. Like, we, we just decided, okay, that's enough. We're done. We got it. And it's like, wait, no, no, this is just the beginning. Yeah, because then from that, well, because from from us going to space, so it started with you know the project Mercury and Gemini into Apollo, then became Skylab, which was this you know our first space station up there. You had the Apollo and the our work with the Russian space industry on the Apollo Suya's like missions where they were linking up together the test links. And then I remember Absolutely. when we were younger, they had the American missions to the Mir space station. Absolutely, and and um you know a part of. Part, well, part of my studies when uh, when I was an undergrad, um, well, one of my degrees is uh, you know is in political science. Uh, specifically, I mean, my, my personal emphasis was on international relations, um, and that was that that cooperation, that collaboration between us and the Russians was one of the best uh, diplomatic exchanges we have ever had, and it was all in the name of science. And it's even great when you um you know you listen to. Uh, you know, uh, Hadfield and, and a couple of these other uh, astronauts that have gone up there, and and you know it's it's a silly question um, when you're when you're open-minded, you're you're world-minded, you know, as to like, hey, how do you get along with the Russians up there? And it's like, uh, they're they're astronauts, and we're we're astronauts, so of course we get along. Like we're there for a mission because you know we have to rely on each other. You know, bringing back like that military context that we discussed last time. Um, you know, when you're you're kind of in the trenches, as it were. You know, and you're you're relying on each other for your your literal survival. You know, there is no room for the childish nationalistic game of like, oh, well, you're Russian and I'm American, so I'm not going to help you if your oxygen hose comes out. It's like, um, that guy might save you when you need it, so it's probably best that you look after his interests as well as your own. Yeah, you may not have to like him, but you just have to know that you and him get can get each other's backs. Sure. I mean, and that's that's in the most dire of circumstances because they've come back and they're like, no, no, like we're friends, like like they're professionals, yeah. and it's a little, you know, especially during the, you know, again during the Cold War because Hatfield wasn't a, was not an astronaut in the Cold War era, at least not to my understanding. I think he was. I think that was post Cold War that they were co- uh, cooperative. But he's like, no, like we're friends, like like they're 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 respected friends and colleagues. I absolutely trust them whenever we're in space, and I trust their professional opinions. We don't always agree on certain things, but like 
you know, that's, that's the point, you know, we're, we're all professionals, we're all scientists and astronauts, we all help each other out, you know, and so it's, it's a, it's a great diplomatic endeavor. Yes, it was, a, and that is, it was a great diplomatic show without Apollo Studios missions and learning it, but I wanted to talk more about the actual beginnings because I had watched Lost in Space this week and it just made me really appreciate kind of their call back to, you know, how NASA just strapped a bunch of guys to a rocket and shot them into space. Oh, sure. Absolutely. All inspired from what they did in the show. And that's that's really what the early space race was, was let's just strap them to a rocket and see what happens. Oh, kind of, yeah. I mean, then, that's twice. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And we, and we, we, I think we brought this up in the last episode as well with the, uh, you know, with Star, they talk about it in Star Trek and, and those exact words, you know, how, how crazy it must have been to, to be in the, in the wild west of space exploration where you literally just had a couple million gallons of jet fuel strapped to your ass. And then you just get launched into orbit, yeah. and, that's, and that's essentially what it is. You're 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 you know you're launching a missile with, uh, you know, a couple of people in a capsule as the warhead. Yep, no, that's exactly what it is. The early like the the um the Mercury and Gemini projects were launched off of modified ICBMs that we had, and so, that's that's what they did. They took a bunch of the best test pilots they could and strapped them into these little capsules, bolted them in, and shot them into space. Now, I, I certainly understand the use of Greek gods as, as a theme for, for rocket and spaceship names, or rather, mission names. Um, mm-hmm. What I don't... I, I think it can be a little... Con- oh, it's not confusing, per se. It's, it's phonetically confusing, I should say. Um, when you have Roman gods as the inspiration for your mission names, because, of course, the, the planets are named after Roman gods... Um, or, or I suppose vice versa, because the Romans still had a, a concept of astrology, uh, astronomy technically, but the, but in antiquity, those two things were very, very much interti- uh, intertwined. They were, they were akin to each other. It's, it's so interesting when they're like, yeah, it's the Mercury mission. I'm like, where's it going? Uh, the, the moon. Wait, what? Right, yeah, it's the Mercury it's like... mission, but where's it going? To get us into space? Oh, we're, so wait, oh, it's the Saturn V rockets. Is this the fifth, this is the fifth rocket to go to Saturn? No, no, this is like the first one to go to the Moon. Wait, hold on. Yeah, it's, it's just like so the why, fifth one in the family line. It's it's not the Luna. No, no, it's the Saturn. Pay attention. So you so you're calling it the Luna mission though, right? Nope, Apollo. Yeah, exactly. Which is even funnier because uh, Apollo's Apollo's Roman name is Helios. He's the the god of the sun. Yeah, he's the one whose <laughs> chariot drives the sun across the sky. Like Gemini, well, exactly. I, I, Gemini makes sense to me because it was it was there that mission was named after t- after the twins and that was the two man mission. I understand Gemini. Gemini makes sense. I'm just saying, you know, maybe the Apollo mission would have made more sense if we sent it to the sun. Yeah, I but then we wouldn't it. have had a, yeah we wouldn't have gotten one step for man. You know, we wouldn't have gotten anything. We would have gotten screams if we don't. We didn't need more <laughs> Apollo ones. Right. Well, I mean, I, I think it also takes uh, it takes a bit of a longer time to get to the sun because I think the uh, it's it's a full astronomical unit. So it's like what ninety three million miles or nine hundred thirty million miles from. Cra- I think it's ninety three million miles. Um, I, I believe so. I, uh, think, I know it's like I, know I think it's like three hundred. It's between two hundred and seventy thousand and three hundred and twenty thousand to the moon. Uh, I, I'm sure there's some incorrect calculation in there, but I, I that's the last word I heard on that. I think that was those were the. The numbers for the moon. So it's also interesting to you know it's one of those funny moments when you have a car that lasts a long time. I'm like oh well, oh, I've made it. I've made it 150,000 miles in this car. I'm halfway to the moon in 10 years. And it took them three days to go there in the Apollo missions. I think you it can really be faster did. in a vacuum. There's a lot less drag. Well, yes. Yeah, I, I'm telling you though, what it, what it, what it would have been to be alive back in those early days of space travel when you know you got excited for rocket launches because they were new. I mean. Growing up in Florida, where the rocket launches happen out of Cape Canaveral, like I'm, I'm still, I still get excited for rocket launches. Um, truly, I mean, it's, it's I think, yes, I, but it was. I, but back I think then I'd be more. New. And I'm with you on that totally. Um, I think I'd be more disappointed to live then, only because, um, you know, when when we consider where we're at now and where we're going, um, I think it's a, I think it's a really fun exercise to to see the the new changes and kind of know where we've come from. Uh, because you get to like, you mm-hmm. know, you get to see, you know, the, all, just all of the, all of the innovation. Um, the disappointing thing is I'm sure you've seen the, the saying it's, uh, what is it? Um, the, I'm, I'm depressed because it's, uh, it's, it's too late for me to explore the world and too early for me to explore the stars. Yeah. Cause we're, we're, we're so, we, again, I'm, I'm not, not that I'm not optimistic, of course, I'm certainly optimistic, but like, you, you know, we're, we're kind of, 
we're kind of at like a new baby stage of space exploration. If we'd continued with the same vigor that we did in the 60s and 70s, um, you know, I think that we would be a lot further along than we are now, but we didn't, and so we're not. Well, and that's true. I think if we had continued on from Apollo with the same energy we had had, we probably could have already colonized on the moon. Oh, certainly. Absolutely. I had a totally set up on the moon. Totally believe that. 100%. Uh, I, I really do. Um, I, I think that. And that's what Skylab was hopefully supposed to pave the way for because it was trying to figure out how humans could operate it for long periods of time in space. And now we're here, we are in. You know, 2018, I think, is when they did when they had the year in space end, and when he came back, and then it's studying what happened after to the human body after a year in space, right? And for missions to Mars and to the Moon for long term stays, and that's great. We could have done all of that 40 years beforehand when we were learning all of it. Oh yeah, absolutely. We could what prevented. Why why didn't NASA want to try to leave somebody in space 40 years ago because they couldn't keep something in space that long? Uh, I mean, I think it's probably a mix of things, of course, because it is exceedingly expensive, and it was a lot more expensive back then than it is now. Um, well, we've we've yeah. really found a way to drop that cost exponentially um, with with how much it costs. I think, like, currently it's, like, I think the cost, and don't quote me on this, I think it's somewhere along the lines of, like, $100,000 per pound or, like, $10,000 per pound. Um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's $10,000 per pound, um, uh, currently at least. Back then it was it was much, much more expensive, but... I mean, ten thousand dollars per pound is a—it's uh, pretty cheap when when you consider it. But I mean, when you consider that it was, let's say, for the sake of argument, that it was a hundred thousand dollars per pound back then. You know, when you consider resupply and oxygen tanks and and every other little thing that you would have had to have sent to those people up there in space, um, especially to something as complex as the moon, like you consider how much the 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 moon missions cost, um, how much it even currently costs to to launch a rocket into space. I think that. The last calculation I saw on it was like I think it's somewhere in the realm of like between two and twenty billion to to send a rocket into space uh, via like the the old NASA model, and so like you consider like wow it's it costs actually no I'm sorry I was like but yeah between two and twenty so I think it's somewhere it's definitely I think it's more than two, um, but I think it's two billion would end the world hunger crisis, and and I, I literally mean like not not end it for a year. I mean, like fucking end it, like completely for two for two billion dollars. If some some government that has it decided just to invest in ending world hunger, we would have ended world hunger. And and we understand just by hum- the the history of human evolution that ending world hunger or ending hunger in general, ending the the scarcity of food, uh, is what jumpstarts intellectual revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so if we if we, if someone just invested two billion dollars and we could literally live in a space age society, a space age planet. Um, you know, but instead we, you know, we send our own rockets up and don't feed anyone. No, we send our rockets up to explore the stars while we let the people starve on the planet. And again, I'm not saying no, don't go to the stars. I'm, I'm absolutely, trust me, I'm, I'm, I'm far more passionate about going to the stars than, than feeding people. But, uh, and it's not, yeah, not because I care become, more. Well, it's not because I, it's not because I care more about the stars than I do about people. It's because my, I, one of my, you know, I don't, I don't sit up at night and dream about helping people and feeding them. I dream about. You know, I say it, but I dream about going to the stars. Um, but, well, you know, yeah, we... I think in order for us to survive as a species, eventually we do have to become interplanetary as it is. We need to seed those seeds. So those, and unfortunately, ending starvation would be great. But if we could get... But finding other planets, finding ways to get people off of this planet and end overpopulation in itself could end starvation. Yeah, but you know, you, you know how a good way to end overpopulation? You feed everyone. Because when you feed everyone and they start learning more, they realize that they shouldn't have 17 children and that like they can, they can make do because when you have food and you increase the intelligence of a society then you increase their ability to innovate and have like you know more medical technology more more medicines in general uh how to cultivate a cleaner society that's with more longevity so feeding you know again if if our concern is going to the stars then we should feed our people because if we if we fed people and and they didn't have to spend their time figuring out where their next meal was coming from and spending their time figuring out how they're going to get access to medicine or or access to other things they could, you know, they could spend their time actually learning stuff and learning science, and we could be increasing the amount of people who work in STEM fields internationally and globally. You know, we could have a whole world of of geniuses. Um, you know, and we could we could, you know, at that point we could really focus and invest our time in going to the stars in a much cheaper fashion. For all of the for all of the pseudo religious political arguments we get about, you know, things like abortion, I, I, I forgive me for possibly touching a chord here, but you know, the people who like to argue, oh well. 
you, you're aborting the person who could have cured cancer. I'm like, well, you know, if you just fed someone, I'm sure somebody in a different country could figure out how to cure cancer if they have access to education because they're not worrying about, you know, finding food. Well, and that's truth. I mean, it's the same argument. Being you know, able the, the, to not have to put your effort into figuring out where your next meal comes from puts in a lot more effort to figuring out other things. Well, and that's, but again, that's, that's the, that's the, that's just the fact of human evolution. Whether you, whether you believe in evolution or creationism or religion or whatever the hell, the fact of human history is that at some point we stopped digging out of the ground and like, you know, and, and trying to, to eat raw meats and do stupid things. And we learned how to cook. We, we learned how to, how to wield fire with a semblance of control. And we learned how to cook our food, increase its nutritional value, and we learned how to cure food and keep it for longer. And that ability in and of itself freed up a lot of our time to do other things. So the we reason, the reason that shepherds. people... We learned... Right. And the reason, the reason science was developed, and this is, this is a fact, the reason science was developed is because people were bored, because they had free time. Like, like Newton figured out most of his most... Uh, apparently, he, he did most of his most brilliant work in the middle of like a plague quarantine because he was at home and he was bored. And so he had nothing better to do but screw around in his lab all day long. And so he made amazing discoveries just because of the fact that he was doing that. Um, you know, and it, it's the same thing. Uh, for instance, uh, gorillas and monkeys uh, know how to use rudimentary tools. They, they mm -hmm. can use rocks and they can use some, some crappy clubs and they even know how to wield fire to some very small extent. Um, you know, but when you consider how gorillas and other primates eat, then it makes a lot of sense because gorillas literally, they're, they're herbivores for the most part. Uh, they eat reeds and, and different kinds of grasses. And so if you watch one, they'll literally pull out a reed that has a lot of like really hard bark on it and they'll chew on that fucker for like three straight hours. So one, they've got ridiculous jaw muscles, so don't piss one off if they want to bite you. Like it's a really bad idea. Um, but two, they spend three hours chewing like three bites of, of this bark because they have to break down this tough bark material, you know, through their salivary glands and everything else so that they can extract the nutritional value from it. If they knew how to cook, they wouldn't have to waste three hours doing it. They would boil water. They would throw the reed in there. They would soften it up. They'd, you know, eat it and it would take, you know, two minutes and that would just be that. And then they would have all this free time to do gorilla things, you know, make gorilla science and, and conquer the human race. Yes, because apes, apes, strong, apes, apes strong together. Apes together. Just keep them away from Cleveland. I mean, why keep them away from Cleveland? I would, I would, I would. I actually, I would, I would probably sick them on Ohio in general. Yeah, but we don't need that Harambe. May he rest in peace. I mean, that's exactly actually that that'd be all the reason we we would send them to Ohio so that way they could get revenge for Harambe. That's a good point. I mean, that's just why they're coming to America in general. Like, you know, can we, can we, actually, no, no. Give me, give me one second. I'm gonna get my dick out for Harambe real quick. Always out. Always out for Harambe. Always out. That meme is so old in that in internet terms it could vote, but it's still so relevant because you know who wouldn't have let us have a massive quarantine from a plague and would have made everybody be safe? Harambe. Harambe.